you ever found yourself in a position in life, good or bad, where you began to kind of question what you were doing? Good things might be uh, weddings, uh, graduations, you know, big events, and you begin to kind of think back about what led you to that point, uh, birth of a child or promotions or, uh, you know, a new large life change of some kind. Uh, bad things seem to be a little bit more common, though, when we find ourselves in a position that we're like, what are you doing? So most of you probably know this. Uh, earlier this year, uh, at the tender age of 39, I found myself in my first jiu-jitsu competition. Great timing, you would think. Uh, and, uh, you know, nothing like two slightly overweight, middle-aged uh, men past their prime wearing robes, essentially, uh, grappling with each other, right? So uh, I find myself in this position. And here I stand across from an, uh, uh, another man, and they tell us to go, and, and we start. And technique goes right out the window. I mean, it's just all old man strength, and let's see who can throw the other one to the ground the fastest. And so it goes on that way for an entire five minutes. And fortunately for me, I came out uh, on top. I won. And at these competitions, if you, if you have a match, uh, you'll get a break. And there will be two, three, four, five matches in between. It gives you a chance to catch your breath, recover, uh, which is a good thing, you would think, uh, unless you're 39 and you begin to question all your life choices that have brought you to this point in place and time. And that's what I did. Uh, I sat there, and, and as I'm breathing hard and trying to slow my breathing down, I began to think, what on earth are you doing? Like, what has led you to this point? And I won. Like, it was good. There was only one other match. I was in the finals. But I thought, my goodness, I've made some horrible life choices that have brought me to this point. Uh, We're going to ask that question today. Uh, We're going to see that question in our opening text. Um, But it's not going to be the person asking it. We're going to see God ask this question. What are you doing here? And so we're going to look at that in 1 Kings so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me to 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to begin. But we're actually going to work backwards, kind of. We're, we're going to look at the life of Elijah, and we're going to jump a little bit. Um, but we're going to begin in chapter 19. So you can turn there. Remember, we're looking at the story of God. We started in January with this, and we're working our way through the Bible. Uh, Dave and I have discussed this as we've spent time preparing for sermons and studying with one another that that we understood beforehand and we understand now that this uh, the Bible is the revealed word of God and it really is the story of God. But when you begin to preach with that specific theme in mind all the way through, uh, you realize that you have looked at passages differently at different times. Maybe maybe you looked at a person or an event to draw out certain principles. But when you begin looking and really trying to identify what's the story of God in this passage, it it can kind of stretch you a little bit to see what's going on. And so as we, we look at this, we think back to what we've covered. We looked at creation. We looked at uh, the, that whole narrative before creation even, that God is eternal. Uh, we looked at the creation of, of all of earth, of mankind, the, the fall of man, the first sin entered the world, how, how uh, humanity spiraled out of control. God brought judgment, but, but he didn't destroy everything. He kept one family. Uh, through the life of Noah, we saw the story of God in that as we got to Abraham and how God makes this promise to Abraham. And we saw the story of God in, in his family as that's played out through uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We see 
uh, how Israel then, this nation, what was one family, has become a large nation. And the story of God through the life of Moses as he uh, delivers the people from slavery and bondage. Uh, and they walk in the wilderness. The story of God through the life of Joshua as they come into the promised land, uh, the conquest of Israel. Uh, we looked at the, the period of the judges, how in that time everybody was doing right what was in their own eyes. Uh, and how God was at work and what he was doing in those specific things. And then recently we've been looking at uh, some of the more prominent kings. And so today it's going to kind of shift a little bit for the remainder of the Old Testament. We're kind of we're shifting gears somewhat uh, looking at the prophets. And today we'll be looking at the prophet Elijah. And the prophets, uh, they overlay over some of this history that we've already been reading. So it's not necessarily a, a separate time period. It, it somewhat is, but really, for the most part, the prophets, you could look and you could overlay that over uh, part of First Kings, Second Kings, Second Chronicles. The prophets were, were people that, that God used as kind of his mouthpiece to speak into the life of the kings and into the people of Israel, uh, most often to make his disapproval known and to bring warning of future judgment if they didn't change the way that they were acting. And so as we, we kind of shift gears in this, we continue looking at the story of God. But what's the story of God in the life of these prophets? How is God using these prophets? And what was he telling to Israel, to the world around them, to the, to the, to the pagan nations that existed around them? Uh, and, and, and how does that story of God impact our lives today? So that's what we're going to kind of look at. So 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm going to begin in verse 9. I've got a couple, couple of larger chunks of scripture I'm going to read today, uh, but it's Kind of significant. Verse 9 reads, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. This is Elijah. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, and they killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. You may be familiar with this passage. Some translations read the, the still small voice. Yours may read that way. And when Elijah heard it, when he heard that whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, or go and return the way you came. Now God goes on. He gives Elijah some instructions. Those instructions are important uh, to the story as it, it progresses on. But we're going to pause there. Elijah may very well have been thinking, What am I doing here? He's in a cave. Okay, The context is he's in a cave in the middle of the wilderness. Think about going out towards... Lake Canyon, uh, into the superstition wilderness, out into the middle of, of, of nowhere, essentially. Uh, and you find a cave, and you're like, here's where I'm going to be. 
there's a chance Elijah was thinking, what am I doing here? But he doesn't ask that. He doesn't say that. But, but God asked that. Elijah, what are you doing here? Now, does God need to ask? No. Is, is God in the dark on what's happening? No, he's been involved in, in all of this and in every step of the way in the life of Elijah and in, in all of the nation of Israel. God knows what's been happening. But think of it this way. You've either done this as a parent or you've had it done to you as a child. Uh, I've done this with my kids. They'll be doing something. and it, It'll catch my attention. They won't really know that I'm paying attention, but I'm watching. And I can see by the, the, either the words they're saying or the choices that they're making that eventually this is going to lead to either something they shouldn't be doing or something that's going to hurt them or something that's just really not appropriate for a child. And I'm watching them. They don't know. I say, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, it gets their attention. I'm not yelling at them. I'm not mad at them. Just, what are you doing? Now, do I not know what they're doing? Of course I know what they're doing. I can see whatever it is that they're doing. It's, it's nothing crazy. I, I, I'm very clear what's happening. But I want them to pause. I want them to pause for just a moment and think through these actions, right? I want them to, to realize that, hey, maybe Dad thinks this is dumb. <laughs> maybe I should consider what's next. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I have to tell them, okay, you don't need to do that because if you do, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Uh, maybe you should consider doing it this way. But my idea is, is essentially to get them to stop for just a moment and to kind of reflect, to kind of think, well, what am I doing? I, God is interrupting Elijah, not as if he had a lot going on, he's in a cave. But he interrupts this moment that Elijah has, causes him to pause and to think about what it is he's doing. Elijah gives him an answer, and then you have this this really pretty magnificent display of things that are happening. You think about crazy wind that's destroying the mountainside, earthquakes and fire, all of this that's, that's happening, the vivid imagery that that could bring up of what Elijah was experiencing. And even in that, he realized that in those things, that was not necessarily God in it. God wasn't speaking to him in those crazy events, but it was in this low whisper, the still small voice, and he asked again. And Elijah still gives the same response. My parents, my mom or my dad would ask me when I was doing something when I was a kid. I'd say, what are you doing? I'd say, I don't know. They'd ask me again. You know what I'd say? I don't know. You've done that or you've had your kids do that. Elijah's like, he he gives him the same response, right? But he wants him to pause. He's interrupting his life in this moment to to reflect on where he's at and what's got him here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of do that for Elijah, we're going to reflect back on Elijah's life. And we're going to kind of hit some wave tops, some, some significant moments. I'm not going to read the story of Elijah, but we're going to do that. Elijah, what were you doing there? Uh, and so we're going to kind of circle back around to this. We're going to come about it in a little bit uh, funny way, I suppose, here. But hang with me. So turn back to chapter 17. We're going to look uh, just at one verse here in chapter 17. We're going to read. Now, when we pick up in chapter 17, Elijah kind of burst onto the scene. There's no mention of Elijah prior to this. 
And, and when he comes onto the scene here, you'll see as you read it and as we read it together, that it's, it's pretty dramatic, the effects of what he's doing and saying. Now, we finished last week in chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 11, with Solomon as we looked at Solomon. Chapters 12 through 16 covers about a 60-year time period, give or take. Okay? Now, there's, there are some significant things that are happening in the nation of Israel that we need to be aware of as we think about this. The kingdom has divided. The nation of Israel has split. I don't know why it keeps doing that. You guys just have to hang with me going in and out. There's now a, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Ten tribes in the northern kingdom, two tribes in the southern kingdom. Okay, this, this is a big deal. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to recognize that we were one nation and now we split. Things aren't going well. We got, there's a lot of animosity. And so you see that play out in the kings and in the lives uh, in these chapters, kind of chapter 12, 13. You pick that up. But that's a big deal. This nation that's birthed out of God's promise to Abraham, as, as we follow this entire story, that he would be a, a, a nation, a multitude of people. And now they're, they're choosing their own ways, which have led to their division. So it's a big deal. That's, that's happened when we pick up here in chapter 17. Second thing is you begin to see uh, during this time period the rise of prophets, of, of true prophets versus false prophets. I mean, prophets are popping up everywhere. Uh, and it's, it's not a good thing. You've got all these people for different gods, some even for Yahweh. Uh, for God, for the Lord, uh, that are that are making these prophecies, and so there's this this tension between true and false prophecy. And then the third thing you really begin to see is that there's this emphasis, there's this focus on what is legitimate worship versus non-legitimate worship. How do we how do we actually worship Yahweh the proper way? And so you see these things begin to rise uh, to the surface as you work your way through those chapters. And so that's kind of in the backdrop. And then Elijah burst onto the scene in chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab is the king, it says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, he's, there's going to be a drought. Hey, king, King Ahab, he's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. Elijah comes in unannounced, essentially. And he's like, hey, I just want you to know, we're not going to have any rain. And the only time we're going to have rain is going to be by my word. And so for these years, it's going to be three years, uh, there's going to be a drought. Now, a drought in any season, in any time and place, is never good. We, we hear about that on the news now, about the water crisis in Arizona. Uh, the landscape in Israel is somewhat similar to Arizona. And so if there's no rain... This is an agricultural community. There's no crops. There's no food. And people get hungry. So this is a big deal. It's significant. But there's a lot more here than just the fact that there's going to be a drought. King Ahab married Jezebel. Jezebel was a princess in Tyre. Uh, I've got this accent. You guys know it. So I probably don't pronounce Tyre right. It sounds more like a, something that you're driving. The Tyre on my car. But Tyre, Tyre, whatever you want to call it. So she's the princess. And in Tyre, they worship Baal. And Baal is this whole other god. And Baal is a fertility god and a storm god. They're tied because the storm god brings rain, which produces crops uh, and, and makes the land fertile. And so this is how they 
perceived Baal. This is what Baal is. Now, Ahab from Israel marries Jezebel from Tyre. And she's got this whole other way of living. Like Solomon. You guys remember last week with Solomon. And so Ahab builds a temple for her. Like Solomon did. But she's not, uh, she's not okay with it just being, hey, this is where I'm going to worship Baal. Like she's, she's, she's a legit evangelist, kind of. She wants to make everybody worship Baal. And so that's what she goes about trying to do in the nation of Israel. And unfortunately, the people are, are kind of doing this. They're um, going back and forth between Yahweh, God, and Baal. Now, what's kind of interesting, and you see this in lots of different religions, uh, there's stories that are kind of made up to support what they believe and why they believe it. Baal was the storm god, and he brought rain. And like most places on the planet, it doesn't rain year-round. There's dry seasons and there's rainy seasons, right? We shouldn't be in a rainy season right now. Monsoon season is over with, but we're still getting lots of rain. It's unusual. But for them, just like it is for us, it rains in a certain time of year and it's dry in a certain time of year. Well, why is that? If he's, if he's God, if he is a God, if Baal is a God and he brings rain, why doesn't he bring rain all the time? Well, they would come up with stories like he would, he would go on trips or there would be another God that would, uh, he would be in a war with and, and, and be killed. And another God would bring him back to life or uh, he had other things. Sometimes he would sleep. The God would just be asleep. That was part of their kind of mythology that was behind this. And so they, they developed these stories to support this strange and foreign idea of we've got this God that's going to bring rain and, and all these things. And so Elijah is not just saying that there's going to be a drought. Elijah is a prophet of the Lord. And he's saying there's not going to be rain because your God doesn't bring rain. But my God does. Like it's a, it's a direct assault. He's setting the stage for a clear attack on Baal. There's 450 prophets of Baal. It's not just, just the adherents, the people that are, worship him in some way. These are the ones that, that, that are strong believers of Baal. And Elijah burst in and says, hey, look, there's not going to be any rain. Because this whole thing that you're doing over here is foolish. And I'm going to prove it. Not I'm going to prove it, but God's going to prove it. So we're not going to have rain. And I'll tell you when we're going to have rain again. Now, if you're in charge of anything, you're the boss at your job. And somebody comes in and tells you, you don't know how to do your job. And this thing that you're doing is kind of ridiculous. And it's not going to work out because of this reason or that reason. It doesn't matter what it is. Ahab's the king, right? Like he's the sitting authority in the nation. And this guy that we've never heard anything about has just come in and said, you're an idiot, essentially. Well, that's how I would have received it. Like, you're dumb. So what happens? Well, they don't like that. Elijah's life is threatened. So here's where we're going to hit some, hit some wave tops. Right after this, immediately after this, God directs Elijah. He guides Elijah uh, into the wilderness, guides him to a brook. He says, you're going to go to this brook. There's going to be water there, and I'm going to take care of you. So Elijah goes off out into the wilderness. He's fed by ravens. These ravens bring him meat and bread for a period of time. And so the very fact, it's a miraculous story in the sense that Elijah's being fed by birds. Uh, My wife really likes birds. Uh, She doesn't like birds at all. 
it would be maybe the most devastating thing on the planet if she had to wake up every day and wait for a bird to bring her food. But, I mean, that's not super enticing thought that that's where your food's coming from. Elijah's got to eat. He's in the middle of nowhere. There's not anything else. His life's in jeopardy. God is using him specifically for this plan uh, to make his name known, to make it clear that Baal is not a god at all and that there's one true god. So Elijah's in the, the wilderness. And so eventually the brook runs dry because, why? There's a drought. And because of this, God says, all right, I want you to go to Zarephath. When he gets to Zarephath, uh, he tells him to stay with a widow and her son. Another incredible story. Spend some time in it. We're going to hit the highlights. And so he goes there. They don't have any food. They've got a little bit of food left, just enough uh, to make one last meal. And she says, uh, he's like, what are you doing? I'm going to make this food. We're going to light a fire. We're going to eat. And then I guess we're going to die because we don't have anything else. Like there's nothing else. Their plan is to have one meal and then die. And we see that God, through Elijah, uh, continues to supply their need continues to to provide sustenance for them and then the next thing you know the the son is sick and he dies and god through elijah brings this boy back to life now they're in zarephath which is in phoenicia which is the heart of baalism they're in the middle of it now now remember elijah starts in israel with this when God sends him out into the wilderness, he actually goes east of the Jordan. I didn't mention that, but it's in there. He goes east of the Jordan. So, so for those cultures, the ancient Near East, oftentimes the cultures existed. In, in some ways today, they think of gods as, as being over certain regions. Uh, this god is the god uh, in, in Tyre. Uh, for Israel, they have Yahweh. And their gods kind of serve in these certain areas, which is a very limited view of a god of any kind, but this is how they perceived it. And so in this way, Elijah is going to east of the Jordan, which is kind of outside what they would consider the realm of, of Yahweh. Now he goes to Zarephath, which is in, in the heart of Baalism, in the middle of it. Well, Yahweh couldn't do anything there. That's, that's Baal's territory, right? And so what we see here, though, in, in, in the heart of Baal's territory is that the drought is very much real. And the people are on the verge and probably likely did die because of starvation. This God has not produced anything. And then you have you have a child that dies. Baal doesn't bring him back to life, but Yahweh does. And so all these things are, are kind of setting the stage. They're all a kind of part of, of God's story, the story of God in the midst of Elijah's life. And so you see this. Now, after this time, uh, he's there for a period of time. God directs Elijah to go back. Now, they've been on the hunt. We're not going to read this, but they've been on the hunt for Elijah. Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, they wanted to kill him. They've looked all over. They've sent people to look for him. Uh, and there was another guy that helped hide some of the prophets of, of Yahweh. And, and Elijah shows up to him. His name was Obadiah. And he says, hey, I'm here. Go let the king know I'm here. You don't have to look for me no more. And so Elijah just kind of shows back up. He, he re-enters Israel uh, with essentially a bounty on his head. So look at chapter 18, verse 17. I'm going to read a, another big chunk here. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. 
and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left, a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So the showdown's set. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to gather all the people. You're going to get all of Israel. You're going to get your prophets. We're going to choose two bulls. You guys choose them. And we're going to set them up. You're going to put them on an altar. I'll let you guys go first. They're going to cut it up. They prepare it. They put it on the altar. Uh, and they begin in the morning uh, to call out to their God. And this goes on and on and on. All morning long until about noontime. And uh, by noontime, Elijah, uh, he's, he's a little bit of an instigator almost. He begins talking smack to him. He's talking trash. He's like, come on. Like, we've been here all morning. What are you doing? Like, why hasn't anything happened? Oh, your bell must be sleeping. Uh, maybe, maybe he's on a journey. Or he says this. This one's kind of my favorite. He says, ah, maybe he's relieving himself. Like, maybe he just went to the bathroom. Like, he'll be back. You guys keep going. Just keep on. Like, it'll, we'll get there eventually. And this happens all day long. And the, the longer the day goes, the more excited these people get. The more they begin to, to wail and weep and cry out to Baal. They begin to, to, to dance. Actually, there's a little bit of a play on words there. It, uh, in the ESV, it says that they're limping around the altar. Probably they were, they were dancing. Some of you, when you dance, it looks like you're limping. Okay, That's kind of the idea. They're, they're limping around the altar. They're dancing around the altar. They're, they're cutting themselves, it says. They're doing anything that they can to, to conjure up this bell god who's going to produce fire and nothing. And Elijah's mocking them. And they sit there with nothing. And then it's Elijah's turn. They've, they've essentially destroyed the altar at this point. He rebuilds it. He has his bull. He puts it up there. And when Elijah calls on the name of the Lord, when he calls on God, the one true God, what happens? Immediately, fire comes down. It, it burns up the meat. It burns up the altar. They, he had them put water on it. So he, he rebuilds it and he says, hey, uh, I want you to put water on top of this. Now, it's hard to start a fire with wet wood. So they douse it. He said, hey, do it again. They douse it again. He had them dig a trench around the altar so that all the extra water as it run off, the moisture would still, be, would still be trapped right there so he could retain it. So they do this three times. They've soaked it. 
In Arizona, you have to douse your fires when you're putting it out. If you're going camping, I tell you to douse it. Put enough water on there so that there's no heat. If you don't, you could wake up in the morning from your tent and see that your chair has fallen in it and it's lit on fire. It's a true story. So that's what they've done. They've doused it. There's no way that this could catch fire. But Elijah calls on the name of the Lord and immediately in that moment, God brings fire down on this altar. Burning up the meat, the altar, licking up the water that is left out. There's nothing. It's all dry. Now, Elijah looks at Ahab and he says, hey, everybody sees this. The people see it. The prophets see it. And the people of Israel bow down and say, the Lord, he is God. They recognize this in that moment. It's one of the good things that they do. It doesn't stick around too long. But in that moment, they respond the right way. And Elijah tells Ahab, hey, look, it's going to rain now. And there's details in there about that story. But this all started with the drought, right? He says, hey, look, it's going to rain now. And he looks in the distance, and sure enough, clouds are beginning to form. And rain comes. Now, Ahab, apparently Jezebel wasn't there. You would think Jezebel would want to be there, but apparently she wasn't there. And Ahab goes to his wife, and like husbands do with their wives, he begins to recount the day's events. And he begins telling Jezebel, she's, she's the one who's brought Baal into Israel. She's the one that, that wants everybody to worship Baal. And Jezebel is not happy. And so she threatens to kill Elijah. I'm going to kill you. Elijah, this great prophet, who's really kind of known as the great prophet, he's kind of an archetype for, for future prophets, just had this tremendous experience on top of the mountain with God. The, the power that God put on display is beyond anything I can really even comprehend seeing. Yet, when this woman threatens his life, He's scared. He's on the run. He's got to get out of here. So Elijah now runs towards Judah, the southern kingdom. And Elijah's in despair, suicidal even. You can see this as you read through. He he hides under a tree, and he says, I just want to die. Like he's done. He's had it. He's overwhelmed with all this. He's, He's worn out. God again provides... Uh, sustenance for him. He ministers to Elijah. And Elijah goes on another journey for 40 days off of one meal. And he goes into the wilderness when he finds this cave and lodges there. And we're back to where we started. What are you doing here, Elijah? God has been with Elijah at every point of this. Doing things in Elijah's life and through Elijah that are magnificent. He's seen these these great displays of might. And he's he's heard God whisper. He's been in such proximity that, that God could whisper into his ear and he could hear it. He's experienced God really on every uh, in every possible way. God has provided food in somewhat bizarre ways, but he's provided food that that 
only could have come in a way that, that God was at work doing this. What are you doing here, Elijah? Let's change the question. We're looking at this as the story of God. We can all kind of understand why Elijah would be overwhelmed. Sometimes we like to think, or I like to think, I won't put words in your mouth. I think if I could have seen that, if I could have been there for that, there's no way like I would not be obedient to the Lord. If I could have just seen that thing that happened in the Old Testament there, like if I would have been a part of that, there's no way I wouldn't do that. But we see that time and time again. And when I look at my own life, I can see where God has been at work, clearly at work in my life. And yet still, I'm disobedient. I'm, I'm unfaithful. So I think we can kind of get that. But here's, here's how I want to change the question to help us get to the answer of this. So what is God doing? God, what are you doing here? Lord, what were you trying to accomplish? What is it you were trying to make known? God, what, what are you doing? The Lord reveals himself as he speaks to and through the prophets, in this case, Elijah. His work in the life of Elijah reveals or highlights that there's one true God. In Israel, in a place that now has been uh, distorted with these other idols, idolatry has, has become a, a really big deal. Trying to understand legitimate worship and non-legitimate worship, the reason is because idols have been introduced into their ways of worship. They begin adopting the ways of these foreign nations and kind of picking and choosing what looks right, what feels right, what, what fits, what makes them feel good. But there's one true God. He's the God of all places, of all time, of all people, and all circumstances. And this is what God, this is what Yahweh is reminding his people of. God's interaction with his people demands a response to either worship him or to reject him. Elijah said, why are you limping between opinions? Why are, you, why are you limping between idols? You have to make a choice. There's no in-between. Israel has been limping between God and Baal and other idols. And God is once again reminding them of how foolish this is. It's, it's nonsensical. I don't even know if that's a real word, but that's what I type. It, it's ridiculous that, that you would worship this this foreign god that it, that's made up that's uh, or, or physical things that they would that they would carve and craft they can do nothing they they have no ears they can't speak they don't have a mouth they they're just there they're created by men and and god is putting on full display that this is foolish he's reminding them once again the fact that he reminds them once again is a reminder of God's enduring love and grace and patience. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with these people. But he doesn't. He comes to them again and reminds them. 
So then let's ask one more question. What are you doing here? Even now, what are you doing here? What's led you to this place in life? What's led you to where you're at? What circumstances and events and choices and decisions have you made that have brought you to where you're at? Maybe physically right here this morning. Maybe it's where you're at in your life, in your career, at work, with your family, in different relationships. What's brought you to that spot? What events have transpired in your life? And then consider this. Are are they a result of you walking fully with the Lord? Or are they a result of you limping between idols? Not choosing fully to walk with the Lord, but, but picking and choosing pieces of it that you like. Times when it fits. Things when it's helpful. Or when you come up with another idea or another dream or another desire, you begin to choose and pursue those things. So your, your life can be characterized as one of somebody who walks with the Lord or limps from challenge to challenge to challenge. Even with Elijah, you see this idea of, of him running, this fear. Now, he clearly knew the Lord is walking with the Lord, but this, this fear is overcome him. And as someone who, who is so closely connected to God, he still, for moments, kind of limps through what he's doing. He's running. He's hurt. He's in despair. This begins initially for someone to just surrender their life to the Lord. But for those that are believers, it's a, it's a continual reminder that God puts on display both his might and his intimacy in our lives. So what exists in your life um, that's causing you to limp? The challenges don't cease when we walk with the Lord. But when we walk with the Lord, we overcome challenges, not in our own strength, but by trusting that, that God will provide. That he'll provide all that we need to experience him in the midst of those things. If God can use ravens to provide sustenance for Elijah, then certainly he's, he's fully capable to provide what we need in our day-to-day troubles. So, will you trust him? Will you trust him fully or will you look to what only he can offer in other places? Let me pray for us. As we do, we're going we're gonna to sing one last song. I'll ask you guys to go ahead and stand. And, and as we pray, maybe you've already been thinking about this. Maybe not, but Ask yourself that question. What are you doing here? What is it that God has for you at this particular time in your life? Maybe you're aware of it. Maybe you've been aware of it. Maybe you have no idea. But sometimes we need an interruption in our life to cause us to pause. God provides those interruptions at times in our life to cause us to pause and to consider what we're doing. And and are we truly pursuing him? Are we pursuing other things? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we, Lord, we know that, that in it we find all that we need for life and for godliness. And so, Father, I pray that, that you would multiply the effects of your word, the, the interaction that you had in the life of Elijah within the people of Israel. Lord, that we would see these not just as, as stories or events that took place in the past, but, God, that when we turn through these pages that we would see you, that we would see your story. And, Lord, that you would use that to shape our lives. Father, help us to experience both both the significant displays of power and those quiet moments to where you whisper to us.